You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends in human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Justine McGann, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. On the occasion of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, we are joined by Julia Dalman, a legal analyst at the Nordic Centre for Gender and Military Operations, and Tyson Nicholas, policy expert on women, peace and security, to discuss the issue of conflict-related sexual violence. Our discussion will be released in a two-episode series, of which this is the first. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, Julia. Hi, Tyson. Welcome. It really is a pleasure to have you with us today. Before we dive into the topic of discussion, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, thank you, Justine. It's uh, my absolute pleasure to join both yourself and uh, Julia for today's podcast. For those listeners out there, my name is Tyson Nicholas, and I'm a proud alumni of Lund University and the Raoul Wallerberg Institute through the Master of Laws in International Human Rights Law course. So indeed, it's my honour to be able to join RWI for this podcast to discuss the challenging, pressing and ongoing issues around conflict-related sexual violence as part of commemorations for the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. A bit about my background. So I'm a career naval officer with over 20 years experience and service within the Royal Australian Navy and indeed the Australian Defence Force. And I'm currently posted as a staff officer for gender, peace and security within the Royal Australian Navy based in Sydney, Australia. And essentially my role is to provide advice to a two-star admiral on issues around women, peace and security, the integration of a gender perspective within military operations, which we call gender and military operations, as well as issues of sexual and gender-based violence. So both issues around sexual exploitation and abuse and also conflict-related sexual violence and other intersectional and cross-cutting themes linked to the women, peace and security agenda. Those being issues around the protection of civilians in armed conflict, issues around human trafficking and modern slavery, and also, also issues to do with grave violations against children in armed conflict. So quite a wide remit in terms of the advice that I provide uh, to the Admiral, uh, but certainly one of the major issues that we do focus on in, in situations of armed conflict is obviously sexual violence targeted primarily to at a civilian population uh, for a number of reasons, which we'll get into in the podcast. In addition to that, I've actually been selected by the Chief of the Australian Defence Force for a three-year secondment, commencing in January of 2023 uh, to United Nations Women in New York as their Strategic Military Advisor. I said before that I was honoured to join the podcast, and indeed that is true. And the reason for that is that it's just so fundamentally important to have a discussion and to continue discussions around conflict-related sexual violence, noting in particular the differential and the disproportionate impacts of sexual violence more broadly and generally uh, for women and girls in almost all contexts, and essentially and especially including during times of armed conflict. I would like to highlight that any views expressed during this podcast are entirely my own and shouldn't be taken to be anything other than views expressed of a personal nature. They certainly shouldn't be considered to be representative of the position of the Australian Defence Force or the Australian Government. Although that said, uh, my views might not necessarily be inconsistent with Australian Government policy. Thank you, Tyson. 
It really is an honour to have you participating in this conversation, considering your level of expertise in this area. Now, Julia, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Justine, for inviting me to talk about this significant and sadly ever so current issue that is conflict-related sexual violence. I am truly honored to be here and talk to you and Tyson about this. And as you said, my name is Julia, Julia Dahlman, and similar to Tyson, I am a RWI and Lund University graduate, from which I earned an LLM in law and an LLM in international human rights law. And actually, I even wrote my master thesis on CRSV, looking specifically at the obligations of armed non-state actors under international law in relation to CRSV. So this is really a topic that is close to my heart. So I'm really uh, keen to be here and talk to you about this. Currently, I am working as a legal analyst with the Nordic Center for Gender and Military Operations, NCGM, and we are uh, or have sort of three roles. We are an international expert center on the implementation of women, peace and security and gender perspective within the military. And we are also a NATO accredited education and training facility, as well as a NATO department head for the gender and military operations discipline. And to that end, we are hosted by Sweden and the Swedish Armed Forces. And with that said, I do need to make the disclaimer that the views and opinions that I express in this conversation are solely my own and does not necessarily reflect the position of NCGM or the Swedish Armed Forces. But as I said for today, I'm just really excited to be back in the RWI context and have this conversation on CRSV for the International Day on the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Thank you, Julia. I have myself read your master thesis in the context of my own personal research and found it very interesting. So I'm very glad to be able to have this conversation with you today. But again, very warm welcome to you both. We are certainly delighted to have you back in an RWI context. Right, I think we should make a start. And I think it's always good to lay the groundwork. Julia, I know you would agree with me on that one, being a lawyer yourself. So maybe you could get us started by defining for the audience what is conflict-related sexual violence, or CISV, and how does it differ from sexual and gender-based violence? Well, thank you, Justine. I really appreciate the question and starting it off there so that we can all have a common baseline understanding of what CRSV is. And maybe this is an occupational hazard, I don't know, but as a lawyer, I really like starting with the definition. So first of all, CRSV is not strictly a legal term or definition, but rather a term extensively used in policymaking and academia, and of course then consistently referred to by various UN bodies, such as the UN Department for Peace Operations, the UN Security Council, as well as the UN Secretary General, who in the annual reports on CRSV actually provide the authoritative def definition. And I will not read that to you now, it's a long one, but basically what it says is that CRSV is various forms of sexual violence perpetrated against women, men, girls and boys with a direct or indirect link to conflict. And that indirect or direct link to conflict could be temporal, geographical or causal in nature. So it requires a proximity in time geography or causality between the sexual violence and the conflict. So to establish that, we need to ask ourselves questions like, when did the sexual violence take place? Where did it take place? 
that the conflict play a substantial part in the perpetrator's ability to commit sexual violence, the way in which it was committed, or the purpose for it being committed. And as a rule of thumb, at least two of these three links need to be established in order for there to be a direct or indirect link to conflict. So a lot of talk about that link, but CRSV is dependent on it, and that actually separates it from the broader term sexual and gender-based violence, which does not require that link. So sexual and gender-based violence, SGBV, is often defined as any type of violence directed against individuals or groups based on their sex or gender. So in that way, you can really see how CRSV is a form of SGBV. And on this note, especially on this day, I do think it is important that we recognize that CRSV and SGBV for that matter disproportionately affects women and girls, but of course also acknowledging that such violence may also be perpetrated against men and boys. And going beyond that sex-based disaggregation, it is important to take an intersectional approach, looking also at other diversity factors that may be affected or even disproportionately affected by such violence. And I think we can recognize this while still remembering that women and girls are disproportionately affected and often targeted by and with CRSV. So uh, sort of going back to where we started, I want to again reiterate that CRSV is not a strictly legal term, but international law still encompass prohibitions of sexual violence, conflict related or not. And we know that international humanitarian law applies in times of armed conflict and that international human rights law applies at all times. And sexual violence is a violation of both these bodies of law, as well as a crime under international criminal law. And this complementarity and synergy between the different legal regimes are important. And they are phrased by Christine Schinken in a brilliant article, by the way, as supporting the notion of a continuum of violence against women linking that which occurs in ordinary everyday life, peacetime, and that taking place in armed conflict, thereby reinforcing states' obligations with respect to elimination of violence against women in public and private. And I think therein really lies the understanding of sexual and gender-based violence and conflict-related sexual violence being part of that. And that is important to remember throughout this conversation and perhaps particularly for this day. Thank you, Julia, for offering such a comprehensive definition. I would also highly recommend anyone inspired in doing further reading after listening to this podcast to check out the word of Christine Jenkin, who certainly is extremely insightful on the topic of today's discussion. But again, thank you, Julia, for being so thorough. Tyson, do you have anything you wish to add? And there isn't much more that perhaps I could add, uh, except to say that uh, Yulia's done a very good job there of drawing out for people. And if I could ask people to think about um, violence of this in this manner, uh, sitting on a spectrum uh, and sexual and gender-based violence being a, an umbrella term, uh, and then the term conflict-related sexual violence, which is also, also called um, other things. So it's also referred to as sexual violence in situations of armed conflict. And certainly for those who delve into UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security. Uh, they will see the term uh, sexual violence in situations of armed conflict. Uh, that should be taken to mean the same thing as conflict-related sexual violence.
Uh, and those those particular issues of sexual violence indeed sit on that spectrum uh, alongside other issues around sexual exploitation and abuse, family and domestic violence, and in particular, abuse directed uh, at uh, women and, and children. I thought that was a very good addition, Tyson. Thank you. It is very easy to get lost in the different terms used in international documents relating to issues of SGBV and CISV. Speaking of the meaning of word used, we often hear the saying, rape as a weapon of war, and discussions of CRSV as tactic of warfare. Tyson, considering your extensive military background, you probably have a better understanding of the meaning of the words tactic of warfare than the rest of us. Could you maybe explain the significance of the use of such terminology? Yeah, thanks very much for your question, Justine. This is a particularly challenging question, uh, but to be frank, all questions around conflict-related sexual violence are indeed pretty challenging uh, and also confronting. Uh, in order to answer this question, I really need to look back to the UN Security Council Resolution 1820 of the year 2008 and kind of frame my answer uh, based around the language in that Security Council Resolution to explain perhaps why I have, uh, I'm torn around um, the language around the use of sexual violence in the situations of armed conflict as being a tactic of war. So UN Security Council Resolution 1820 is a seminal moment both for the Security Council, uh, but also more broadly for the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And it's a seminal moment for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that it links sexual violence in situations of armed conflict to threats to international peace and security. The second is that it specifically talks about women and girls being particularly targeted by the use of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict. And this is precisely what Yulia mentioned in her answer to the previous question. The other aspect here uh, is that it links sexual violence in situations of armed conflict to potential war crimes, crimes against humanity, and also to constituent crimes to the act of genocide. And finally, it does, and it really gets to what is the crux of this question, really it talks about the use of sexual violence being commissioned as a tactic of war in order to deliberately target civilians or as part of a widespread or systemic attack against civilian populations. And what's your personal opinion on the association of CRSV and tactic of warfare? Personally, I dislike the use of the term tactic because it risks giving an air of legitimacy to the use of sexual violence in order to achieve a military objective. And this is because the terminology tactic is synonymous or a synonym for the word method. And in terms of uh, warfare, we have both methods of war and also means of war. So indeed, methods of war are tactics of war, or the tactics that are employed in the context of war, and means of war are the weapon systems that are then used and employed by those tactics. And so that's terminology that exists uh, within international humanitarian law that is important to understand in framing my answer for this question. And so I'm uncomfortable in how the Security Council framed the use of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict as being tactics of war, because methods or tactics under the broader principles of international humanitarian law are subject to precautions and tests around proportionality, distinction, and military necessity. That said, 
sexual violence is inherently unlawful. It's unlawful in times of peace, and it's certainly unlawful in times of armed conflict. In this respect, sexual violence as a war crime, as a crime against humanity, or as a constituent act to genocide, is inherently unlawful uh, and cannot be subject to a test such as precautions, proportionality, distinction, and military necessity. And therefore, in my mind, it can't be a tactic. It can't be a method of warfare because it can't be subjected to those particular tests under international humanitarian law. And so I'm torn by the fact that the UN Security Council resolution used this language. I'll admit it is effective to convey gravity uh, and to, to convey the gravity of the use of sexual violence uh, in situations of armed conflict to a layperson, to be able to spell out how sexual violence targets and impacts civilian populations, to be able to talk about how it inflicts suffering on the individual, how it terrorises the individual and indeed a broader population, to talk about how it displaces people and to talk about how it destroys the social fabric of families, of communities and of societies. But my legal brain suggests that perhaps the terminology tactic should have simply been omitted. And in that respect, the Security Council could have specifically just said that women and girls are particularly targeted by the use of sexual violence and that this is done so to humiliate, dominate and instill fear, to disperse and or to forcibly relocate civilian members of a community or ethnic group. And so additionally, the Security Council could have also talked about sexual violence and it could have talked about sexual violence deliberately targeting civilians or as part of a widespread or systemic attack uh, for, against civilian populations. And it simply could have omitted the terminology commissioned as a tactic of war. And for my legal brain, I feel like that would have been a more suitable outcome for this particular Security Council resolution. Julia, do you maybe have anything to add or a different perspective on the association of tactic of warfare with CRSV? Yes, so I do want to add something very briefly, and I do completely agree with Tyson. At the same time, though, I do, I guess, understand the descriptive value from a policy perspective and framing CRSV as a tactic of war in order to sort of paint the picture of how systematically and weaponized it can be used during armed conflict. But then, of course, as Tyson so eloquently explained it, this doesn't really make sense from an IHL perspective. And additionally, I have sort of another issue or aspect, if you will, that I wanted to add to that. And that point brings us back to the definition and that although CRSV often is perpetrated with a political or military purpose and something that is widespread and systematic, the definition also encompass individual and opportunistic forms of CRSV, which also occur in situations with an indirect or direct linked to armed conflict. And from a survivors and victim-centered approach, I think it is significant that we keep that in mind and talk about the entire spectrum of violence that amount to CRSV. Thank you for your intervention, Julia. You've raised an important point in the fact that there is still opportunistic sexual violence which occurs in situations of armed conflict and insecurity. I think that only focusing on the tactical aspect can mean having a very narrow understanding of the reality of the situation on the ground. But turning back to you, Tyson, do you have any additional thoughts? I would be very interested in hearing what you would have preferred the UN Security Council to have used. So I absolutely agree with Yulia uh, and the point she makes 
around tactic being a useful policy approach uh, to articulate the gravity uh, of the use of sexual violence in armed conflict to a wider audience. My level of uncomfortableness really is around a, a preference uh, for the Security Council to have been more cautious in its approach and its, in its framing of sexual violence in situations of armed conflicts. Uh, and in that respect, they are to have simply omitted the language tactic of war from UN Security Council Resolution 1820 and any subsequent resolutions so as to avoid any air of legitimacy to the use of sexual violence in armed conflicts. And from my perspective, that would have been a more preferred outcome uh, or indeed solution uh, to this particular uh, challenging issue uh, in and around discussions around conflict-related sexual violence. Thanks to both of you for your answers to this question. As stated earlier in this podcast, it's extremely important to understand the meaning of words used in defining a concept. But moving on now to a more prosecutorial aspect. As you've both mentioned, CRSV has devastating and permanent, not only physical, but also psychological effects on individuals and entire communities. However, despite the acknowledgement of the extent of the occurrence of CRSV, and the levels of prosecution are extremely low. And in fact, in ratio to the occurrence of such acts, it's basically insignificant. The levels of impunity are so high that it has sometimes been put forward as a reason why CRSV is utilised by armed groups. But this is not to say that there are no existing paths for prosecution. Julia, could you maybe get us started by talking through some of the remedies available for survivors? Yes, of course, and thank you for the question. It's a really good question, as all of the questions have been. And I believe, again, that I want to sort of go back to the basics. So we have already talked about how CRSV is not strictly a legal term, but that CRSV anyways is a violation of international humanitarian law and international human rights law, as well as a crime under international criminal law. And turning first to IHL, Sexual violence is not explicitly prohibited in any treaty, but customary international law fills this gap through case law and the work of the International Criminal Tribunal of former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal of Rwanda. And the IHL prohibition of rape and sexual violence applies in international and non-international armed conflicts alike. And the acts of sexual violence prohibited under IHL correspond to the acts encompassed in the definition of CRSV. And acts of rape and sexual violence may constitute serious violations of IHL and in turn war crimes if there is a sufficient nexus to conflict. Moving to international human rights law, a body of law applying both in times of peace and conflict. And while the primary obligation to uphold human rights falls on states, it is increasingly understood that armed groups, notably those in effective control of territory and over the populations therein, also have human rights obligations. And this is really significant in relation to CRSV being perpetrated by such actors in non-international armed conflicts that we know is happening all over the globe, as we can see in the annual reports of the UN Secretary General on CRSV. And acts of sexual violence infringe upon a number of human rights, including, for example, the right to life, the right to liberty and security of the person, the right to equality, and the right to not be subjected to torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. 
And then, of course, we also have the right to an effective remedy and access to ju justice, which we talked about before, and it's really at the core of your question, Justine. So we have international criminal law that deals with individual criminal responsibility for international crimes. And in this regard, of course, it's impossible not to mention the International Criminal Court. The ICC in its statute does prohibit sexual violence as a war crime. And according to case law, as we mentioned, sexual violence can also amount to crimes against humanity and the constitutive element of genocide. So based on those sort of uh, basic ICL international criminal law understandings, there is a concept under international law that allows for universal jurisdiction, which basically builds on the same notion underpinning international criminal law, namely that some crimes are so unacceptable that they concern all nations and the international community as a whole, thereby sort of abandoning the traditional principle or understanding that jurisdiction is based on the territory where crime was committed or the persons involved in it. Instead, any state may have jurisdiction to prosecute international crimes under this universal jurisdiction. And the ability to rely on this for prosecuting war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide is generally acknowledged as customary international law. And as said, CRSV may amount to all of those three international crimes. However, universal jurisdiction do remain a sort of somewhat controversial practice and states are not obligated to prosecute international crimes under universal jurisdiction, meaning that the exercise of that and the prosecution with respect to or based on universal jurisdiction is dependent on the goodwill of the state and the ability of the state to do so. Nonetheless, since the Second World War, states have relied on universal jurisdiction to pursue individual criminal responsibility for international crimes. And the Israeli trial against Adolf Eichmann and the Spanish trial against Augusto Pinochet are well-known examples. But this has sort of also increased more recently, I would say, in the aftermath of the ISIL uh, conflicts uh, in Iraq and Syria, where Argentina, Germany, Sweden, Finland, UK and the Netherlands have used universal jurisdiction for the prosecution of war crimes in, in the conflict I just mentioned or in, in relation to others. And on that note, from a Swedish perspective, I know that recently the Supreme Court has ruled that the Swedish court has jurisdiction to hear the prosecution of a Swiss former representative of Lundin Oil for complicity in alleged war crimes committed in Sudan between 1999 and 2003. And Additionally, I know in Sweden there are ongoing investigations as to the armed conflict in Ukraine and those alleged war crimes taking place there, although those investigations primarily aim to support the ICC rather than pursue national prosecution under universal jurisdiction. But that sort of also goes to show the interlinkages between national and international remedies. Thank you for this very thorough overview, Julia and for touching upon the very interesting topic that is universal jurisdiction. Just jumping on your last point there of the interlinkages between national and international remedies. If the primary responsibility always lies on state to prosecute in situations where they are unwilling or unable to, the responsibility then falls into the international community as a whole, and notably on the ICC, the International Criminal Court, if it has jurisdiction over the case. 
Tyson, would you be keen to expand on that? Yeah, thanks, Justine. Uh, and uh, certainly uh, also thank you to uh, Yulia for such a comprehensive answer uh, uh, to what is really a complex topic. I just want to build on it with a couple of observations uh, for those listeners out there as well um, in terms of uh, how they might frame and think about this particular issue, uh, indeed the issue of the high levels of impunity. I guess the first observation I would make is that um, more broadly, there is an issue around sexual and gender-based violence uh, and the criminality associated or the criminal acts associated with sexual and gender-based violence, um, generally um, receiving high levels of impunity more broadly in peace, uh, in fragility, and certainly in armed conflict as well. So in that respect here, what I guess what I'm saying is, is that traditionally sexual violence crimes uh, are very difficult uh, to prosecute to a standard of beyond reasonable doubt. So to meet that criminal standard for prosecution uh, of beyond reasonable doubt uh, due to a variety of reasons. And so if we think about uh, sexual violence crimes, say, in a situation of relative peace uh, and the difficulty that there exists in terms of being able to hold uh, perpetrators of sexual violence crimes accountable uh, in times of relative peace, of course, those issues are only exacerbated uh, tenfold or plus uh, in times of armed conflict or fragility uh, when you when when conflict-related sexual violence uh, is indeed an issue that uh, needs to be addressed. Uh, and so, you know, there's issues there around under-reporting uh, of sexual violence more broadly in societies uh, and certainly under-reporting of sexual violence in situations of armed conflict. Uh, there's also then, um, as I said, that ability to be able to meet that uh, criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt in a courtroom subject to, to cross-examination, uh, which is uh, which is a significant issue. Oh, I think, um, you know, in that respect there, um, there are some more procedural uh, or indeed practical issues uh, in terms of the safeguarding of evidence. Uh, and indeed, um, that is significantly difficult, the ability to be able to safeguard forensic evidence, to be able to safeguard testimonial evidence, to be able to ensure that those who provide initial testimonial evidence are then available uh, to a court at a time when it actually comes to court uh, to be able to be cross-examined uh, and certainly obviously uh, weighing that against the rights of the accused to the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. Um, all of those uh, types of issues obviously are at play here. And as I mentioned, you know, this is something that is uh, not just unique to uh, issues of conflict-related sexual violence, but indeed more broadly to issues of sexual violence or sexual violence crimes uh, in almost every single society. Uh, and in that respect there, that uh, that obviously has a, has a difficulty and a part to play. I uh, spent a number of years as a military expert on investigations into sexual exploitation and abuse with the United Nations Department of Peace Operations. Uh, and we had very similar issues, certainly in terms of sexual abuse cases, uh, being able to safeguard evidence and certainly better provide that evidence then uh, towards a criminal prosecution for individuals, not from a, a, a lack of willingness or from a lack of want, um, but just, um, you know, more broadly due to um, uh, the practicalities of, uh, of how that plays out and obviously the willingness of those who are indeed victim survivors to want to proceed with um, uh, with prosecutions from a criminal perspective, noting how um, how that really it c it can actually re-traumatise those victims' survivors uh, because of the adversarial nature of uh, often of criminal trials, um, 
and uh, the way in which uh, an accused may seek to uh, to 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 really attack the uh, the credibility of victims, um, and of course as well uh, the maintenance of um, of forensic evidence and uh, and other issues of evidence are, uh, are challenging. Um, and so in that respect here, you know, uh, not only is it just just just, just take uh, you know and 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 Yulia mentioned uh, the will of a nation state uh, in terms of universal jurisdiction to apply that. Um, because it's not obligatory to do so, um, it also uh, it takes everyone to act in good faith um, to carry this uh, those investigations through, um, and then ultimately to be able to safeguard that evidence and then be able to produce that to a criminal standard in a court of law to be able to then uh, hold someone accountable. Uh, I guess uh, laid on top of that as well is um, is the is the real challenge in terms of actually in the, in the situation of an armed conflict when an armed conflict is still ongoing. Uh, being able to safely get investigators on the ground to be able to gather and safeguard that evidence. Thank you, Tyson. Julia, do you have anything to add on international prosecution? So thank you, Tyson, for that comprehensive input and insights. And I do want to build on one of the great points that you made, namely that on individual criminal responsibility and international crimes. And with respect to that, I do think it's important to remember the immense and significant work that was done by the International Criminal Tribunal of former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal of Rwanda during the 1990s and onwards, which were really seminal, I would say, in defining sexual violence, as well as prosecuting and convicting it as forms of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. The International Criminal Court and its statute definitely drew upon that, but the potentials have not yet at least been translated into practice. As of now, I believe there is only one conviction of sexual crimes by the ICC. Thank you for tuning in to this conversation on CRSV with Jura Delman and Tyson Nicholas. You have been listening to On Human Rights. This was episode one of a two-part podcast series on conflict-related sexual violence, recorded on the occasion of the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women. For more information on the work of the RWI, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.